If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40 as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis and specifically now through the life of Joseph. Let me talk about cooking for a minute and hopefully you'll see why. (laughs) There's some things when you're cooking that you have to leave the lid on. Uh, If you're cooking rice in a rice maker or in a pot and you keep taking the lid off, you're going to have hard rice. It's never going to cook fully. Or even think about about barbecue. Most grills are not made of glass, and so they are dark. And you put that meat in there, and it's got to smoke kind of all day long with the cover on. And if you keep lifting that up, you're just going to mess the whole process up. It needs to be in that place where you can't see it, and you have to trust that something is going on, that it's accomplishing what it's supposed to do, that you're going to have some delicious brisket or some nice fluffy rice when everything is is said and done. Now, as we think about the life of Joseph, I think we're in a period where sort of the lid is closed, uh, that, that God is doing something in Joseph's life, and he would like to lift it up and say, what, what exactly is going on in here? But to do that would ruin everything that, that God is doing, as it were. That God is building character in Joseph, but it has to happen with the lid closed and sort of in darkness and that he doesn't really know exactly what is going on. We find him here in chapter 40 in another pit, and he is forgotten by those who would seem to be the ones that would help him. But it's it's in this dark place that God is, is working in deep ways in Joseph to make him the man that he needs to be, to make him the leader that is going to rescue the world, as it were, through his actions. And I think as, as God is working to accomplish his purposes in this world, he is he's building character in his people. God's, God's doing something, and as he's working, sometimes in our lives we're in these situations where We're not really sure what's going on, but we know that God is doing something and he's building something in us, even if we might not know exactly what he is doing. And we'd like to peek. We'd like to lift the lid and say, what exactly is happening? But if to do that is it it ruins the whole process and we can't even do it. I tried to come up with one statement to summarize this passage. Uh, It was difficult. I think what's interesting about narrative, what's interesting about the Bible is sometimes we read Paul and it's it's sort of line by line explanation. And sometimes we read Genesis and it's just a story. And you can ruin a good story by trying to just say, and here is the moral of the story. You know, sometimes people do that and the whole story is kind of ruined. But I, I think that there's 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 truth here. And even just in reading the story and putting ourselves into Joseph's shoes that we will see what that is. But let me give you three different statements that are maybe trying to summarize what's going on here. Um, for those of you that write these down, it'll be, I'll try to be slow. Um, here's one, one way I tried to summarize it. When it comes to character building, there is no substitute for experience. That's one way maybe we can think about this passage, okay? So we'll give, I'll give you three big ideas and then we'll dive into it. When it comes to character building, there is no substitute for experience. How about this one? Uh, God is growing you even when others forget you and when it looks like God has forgotten you too. <laughs> again, we're thinking about this character building. God is growing you. God is 
building character in you, even when it looks like everyone else has forgotten you, and maybe that God has forgotten you too. And then I thought about a Heinz commercial from when I was a kid. You remember glass Heinz ketchup bottles? Now they're all squeezed. But do you remember this commercial? The best things come to who? To those who wait. And it was all the commercials where they're waiting for the the ketchup to come out. Uh, And I think good character is formed in those who wait. There's something about that time period of being... uh, in these situations, maybe where the heat is on, if we want to continue with that, that cooking illustration. So when it comes to character building, there's no substitute for experience. God is growing you even when others forget you, and it appears that God has forgotten you too. And good character comes to those who wait. Let's read Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, There were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Then you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly. When you were his cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer. And the head of the chief baker among his servants, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. 
This chapter begins with this phrase, some time after this. So this, this is a reference back to chapter 39, to Joseph's time as a servant of Potiphar in his house, but also specifically to this instance that we saw last week uh, where Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, and then that leads to him being thrown into prison. Now, if you want to think about timeline, Joseph was 17, you remember, when we were first introduced to him, 17 years old, and we see later on that he is 30 years old when he rises to power in Egypt. So these events in between occur over a span of 13 years. Um, We're told at the beginning of chapter 41 that there's a gap between the events of this chapter, chapter 40, and the events of chapter 41 of two years. So we know that this all happened about 11 years Um, that that all these events happened in the span of about 11 years. So his being sold into slavery, his time in in Potiphar's house, his time in prison, and interpreting these dreams lasted about 11 years. Now, we don't know exactly how they're broken up, but needless to say, that's about the time span. That's obviously a significant amount of time in a young man's life, 17 years old to 30 years old. Can you imagine? Can you imagine graduating high school? Uh, being enslaved then and not released until you were 30 years old. Instead of of being in his father's land where he probably would have been married and begun a family, instead he is in a foreign land, he's held captive. He has risen within the prison, but the text still says that he is confined, which may mean that he was kept in chains while he was in this prison, maybe while he wasn't doing his specific duties. Of course, after the the phrase, sometime after this, you begin to read chapter 40, and it's talking about the the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and you start remembering nursery rhymes like the the butcher and the baker and the candlestick. I keep thinking about that as I'm reading through this for some reason. But you start reading it and say, why am I being told about this cupbearer? Why am I being told about the baker? And it seems disconnected until verse 3 when you find out, oh, they landed in the same prison as Joseph. And not only that, but they're put under Joseph's care. So these guys become Joseph's um, friends, as it were. Now, you think about a baker and a cupbearer, and these seem like simple jobs. Of course, you know, baker's still a job. We don't have many people that are employed as cupbearers um, in our day. But these guys were not just low-ranking servants. Rather, these would have been two key trusted men in Pharaoh's service. They were given the charge of protecting Pharaoh from Two key ways that people would want to kill him, by poisoning him, whether through what he drank or through what he ate. And so we're not told exactly what these guys did wrong, but obviously there's some sort of breach of trust here. Um, they, Pharaoh would need, would need to trust these guys implicitly because he's, in, in a sense, he's putting his life into their hands. And for some reason, he does not trust them. Maybe he hears about a plot to kill him and he thinks they're connected with it. Maybe he got sick. Maybe he ate some food and got food poisoning and says, what's going on here? Or maybe he just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, which if you're Pharaoh, you're allowed to do that. Whatever the case, in verse 4, they they land in prison, and the prison, it says that they were there uh, for some time. Again, that phrase. So it's not just a short sentence. They're there for, for some time. Now, it seems like these verses are just sort of setting the stage, right? We're getting ready for what's going to happen. But I think within them, there's also this wonderful witness, another witness to God's sovereignty, his sovereignty over the events of Joseph's life and over all things. Sovereignty, the the way that he controls and uses the events of our lives and the events 
uh, that surround us and collide with our own to accomplish his greater purposes for us and for the world. So in this this in this imprisoning of a cupbearer and a baker in placing them in this prison and placing them under Joseph's care and then later giving them specific dreams that that Joseph interprets in all of this God is is paving the way for not only Joseph's release but for his exaltation in Egypt and also for the saving of all of Egypt and all of the surrounding nations through Joseph and it's all sort of hinging on this moment when these guys land in prison and meet Joseph. They don't happen by chance or happenstance. These things are ordered and ordained by an all-sovereign, supremely wise God. That's why they're there. These words, words like chance, serendipity, fate, luck, coincidence, destiny, karma, these are words that people use when they see God sovereignly working but don't want to attribute those things to God. I think everyone identifies that for some reason there's, there's small and meaningless things that sort of change the course of human history or ways that things just work out in an amazing way. But there's the option within seeing that of, of saying God didn't do that or of saying God has orchestrated all of these things and he is the one that is working them out. So for those of us who hold to the belief of an all-powerful, sovereign God who ordains all things, then we can look at the world and we can see all of these things happening and say, wow, God is at work. There are no coincidences in life, only acts of divine providence that he is controlling. As we, we move forward, we see that God is not simply sovereignly working these things out for future events, but he's also concerned specifically about Joseph. He's concerned about Joseph's growth, about the formation of Joseph's character. And he's using all of these things to shape Joseph more and more into the man and into the leader that he needs him to be. And such is the case for all the things that are happening in our lives, that God is using them to shape us, to polish us, to make us into the people that he wants us to be. In the course of time, in God's divine providence, what happens? The baker and the cupbearer have dreams. They have dreams on the same night, and they have dreams that are very similar on the very same night, and they wake up in the morning and they say, I had a dream. And they tell each other the dream. And they're so eerily similar that these guys get a little freaked out. <coughs> the day after these dreams, Joseph comes in, he sees that they're visibly troubled. It's sort of written all over their faces. We might sort of step back and note that, that Joseph who when he was a young man sort of seemed oblivious to the feelings of his family. You remember that? He just sort of came down the stairs and said, hey, I had a dream last night. Let me tell you about how you guys are all going to bow down to me. And, and it creates all this havoc within his house. But here he seems as if he has grown to be more of a, a man of, of compassion. He's faced a lot of difficulties. Think about all that Joseph has gone through. And so now, as someone who has gone through that, he's, he's changed from being, changed from being a, a self-absorbed young man to a caring, compassionate, observant man. He, he sees people that are in trouble and he recognizes that. Hey, I've been there too. I've gone through that. Again, there's no substitute for experience. There's no substitute for walking through difficulty so that we can grow in compassion for those who are going through difficulty. And as we go through hard things, God is instilling in us, God is instilling in Joseph, a heart that sees the needs of others and, and cares about it. 
As we face hardship, that's what he's doing in us. We need to, to face hardship so that when others are going through it, we don't just say to them, we'll just suck it up and get over it. But we recognize it's not that easy sometimes. And I think Joseph is learning that. These two men, I think they're troubled by the dreams themselves, by the fact that these dreams coincide. But it also says there, it says that they were troubled because there was no one to interpret them. There's no one to interpret the dreams. In ancient cultures, there were those that were considered experts at interpreting dreams. There were books in Egypt and in Babylon, dream books that would provide sort of a sample dream and then show all the keys to interpretation of that particular dream. But these guys have no access to these books. They have no access to the dream interpreters in Egypt, so they are totally distressed. And Joseph comes in and says, why are you guys so upset? And they say, we've had these dreams, and we have no one to interpret them for us. Think about what that would mean to Joseph and his history. We've had dreams. Dreams. Dreams like Joseph had. Remember Joseph's dreams, that everyone was going to bow down to him? Dreams that said he would be exalted above his brothers and even his parents. Dreams that had brought the anger of his brothers that caused them to destroy him. Dreams that had landed him in a pit in Dothan and now landed him in a pit in Egypt. Dreams that seemed pretty much dead. I would expect Joseph to be extremely cynical about dreams. He would say, I've had dreams too, guys. There's nothing to them. Okay? It's best just forget about it. Make the best of this situation that you're in. If someone wants to interpret them, don't even listen to them because there's no guarantee that that is what is going to happen. But his words to these guys are not the words of a bitter man who has rejected God's purposes for him. Rather, they're the words of a guy who is still trusting in God, still believing the truthfulness of what God had revealed to him as a young man. Despite everything that's coming at him, it says the opposite. So he says to them, do not interpretations belong to God. He says, as it were, Interpretations don't belong to books, and they don't belong to all these interpreters in Egypt. They belong to God, to the one true and living God that I serve. The worshiper of God, remember this, doesn't need any other arts or avenues to know the deep things of God. Horoscopes and tarot cards and psychics are a complete waste of time, period. Interpretations of the deep things of life belong to God and him alone, and we have all that we need in his word through his spirit. End of story. So, Joseph says, interpretations belong to God. And then he says, now tell me your dreams. Tell me what you've, you've dreamt. He, as the representative of the one true God in Egypt, he's probably maybe the only representative of the true God, says with confidence, you tell me your dreams, and my God will interpret them through me. That's confidence. Does Joseph want out of here? I think Joseph desperately wants out of jail who wouldn't want out of jail right but i think as we watch him interact with people and as we've seen him in in potiphar's house and now seen him in prison and and what he does just sort of blossoms and everything that he does is successful we see a guy who who was in a situation that was difficult but was still faithful he's going to plead with the cupbearer he's going to say please help me get out of here but while he's here he's willing to be used by god his his goal in this situation is not just to get out of the situation, but to get something out of the situation. He wants to get what God has for him. Wherever Joseph is, he sees God working in him, and then he sets his hand to work for God. So he, he's not 
just sitting there doing nothing. You know, if all we're worried about in difficult situations is how to get out of them, we'll never learn what God wants us to in the midst of them. We'll never get the character that he wants to build in us. We'll never grow. If we're not faithful in the tasks that we have in front of us, we'll miss opportunities that God would have for us to to grow and to work for him. If all we're worried about in difficult situations is getting out of them, we will get nothing from them. So Joseph could have looked at his time of enslavement and said, well, this is not my destiny. I will be exalted one day. That's what the dream said. So I'm just going to wait here. I don't have to work hard. I'm just going to let God exalt me. But it was actually these experiences that would equip Joseph to be the leader that he needed to be. And it's the pain that prepared him for the realization of those dreams. So I encourage you, if you're in difficulty, in pain, don't despise that. Don't despise where you are now. God wants to use that. He wants to grow you. He wants to change you. He wants to mature you for his purposes and for his glory. So the cupbearer tells his dream, simple dream, and the interpretation is very straightforward. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you. And so the baker says, that sounds good. Let me tell him my dream. So he tells him his dream, and Joseph says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. (laughs) He's going to be executed. He will be killed. It may be that the baker was guilty. Maybe that's why it happened. It's hard to know. But in between these interpretations, Joseph pleads with the cupbearer. He says, please, this is what's going to happen. Remember me when you are restored. Now, that's confidence, isn't it? He says, this is what's going to happen. Now, when it happens, because I just told you it's going to happen, and I'm positive it's going to happen. When it happens, talk to Pharaoh and get me out. And this is the first time he speaks about his innocence. He says he's stolen from his homeland. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And that's what's landed him in this pit, this second pit. He uses that word there. Joseph sort of sees the light at the end of this, this long tunnel. He's, God has brought this cupbearer here. God has given him the ticket out of prison. It's, it's through this guy and he sees it. This is it. So Joseph is willing to learn in the pit, but when he sees the opportunity to get out, he says, okay, this is how I'm going to get out. This is the, the way of escape that God has provided. It's through this guy who's going to get exalted, and he's going to talk to, to Pharaoh, and he's going to get me out of here. So three days later, after giving these interpretations, Joseph watches these guys leave the prison, just like he said. And then he probably heard about how the baker was executed, just like he said, and how the cupbearer was exalted, just like he said. And so he says, all right, any day now. Maybe it's going to take a few days or maybe a week. And so he waits for a week and then two weeks, and then he waits for a month, and then he waits for two months, and nothing happens. And he realizes he has been completely forgotten again. Let down. It's fascinating. It's so interesting to look at this and think about how God had sent these guys to prison at this time under Joseph's care and then gives them these dreams so that Joseph can interpret them and so that these events are going to eventually lead to Joseph's release. But eventually that's going to happen. And so I can sit back and say, that's fascinating. That's interesting. But what was it for Joseph? It was not fascinating and it was not interesting. What's it for you? What about when you see a situation come up, a circumstance, and you say, this is the way I'm going to get out of this difficulty. This is how I'm going to be free from this pain. It's a cure, a job, 
a move, an opportunity, a house, a relationship, some test you're going to pass, a procedure that someone will do, a, a change that's going to happen, something that's going to be the solution to your pain and to your difficulty, someone who will be the person that God will use to deliver you, that will help you. And what about when that something or that someone just the bottom drops out? They completely fail you. This thing never materializes the way that you thought it was going to you. It's not interesting. It's not intriguing. It's frustrating. It's confusing. It's discouraging. I think this phrase, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The reason that's there is to remind us of chapter 39. And what was the key point of chapter 39 that bookended everything? The Lord was with Joseph. Everyone else can forget him, but the Lord is with Joseph. Everyone else let him down, but the Lord is with Joseph. In fact, I don't even think Joseph was discouraged for very long. Because I think that God, what God had done for him is he'd given him these two guys with these two dreams that he interprets perfectly. And he thinks it's the way of escape. And that doesn't happen. But what confidence. Hey, you know what? God does interpret. God, exactly what I said is what happened. God hasn't let me down. Now, I'm going to have some words with the cupbearer when I eventually get out of here. But God isn't the one that let me down. God actually has shown that he is faithful. I think in the midst of difficulty, doesn't God do that? Maybe he doesn't release us. But he says, I, I'm still here. Let me give you just, you know, I'll, we can lift the lid a little bit and see what's cooking. Just take a small peek and you can see something's going on in there. The flame hasn't gone out, as it were. And, and something is happening. Why did it happen like this, though? <laughs> I mean, there's so many other ways that God could have saved Egypt and, and, and exalted Joseph. Instead, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's forced into prison. He's forgotten by the cupbearer. Why? That's just how God works, usually. <laughs> That's the way that God handles situations. It's because, and I, and I think we see that Joseph, this scene in his life is part of a bigger story. And that's where I think we see the whole story, not just of, of Joseph's life, but of Genesis and even of the whole plan of redemption, that this scene is just, it's just one scene. It's one moment in what is going on. And, and we get to see this bigger picture. Joseph doesn't see the bigger picture totally. He's got some glimpses of it. And, and for us, when we're in that scene, when we're in prison unjustly and forgotten by potential saviors, that's hard. So how do we deal with that? How does Joseph deal with that? How do we handle these things? I'll give you two things that we'll think about as we close. I think it's the big picture and our big God, just to keep it simple. So the, there's the big picture, remembering the big picture, and remembering our big God. That's how we deal with this stuff. So we, we put... I think you put a particular point of your life in perspective within within our own life, within the span of years that I have, within God's plan for the whole world, and then even beyond that, within all of eternity. How does this particular moment line up in what God is doing? 
we have the, the big picture of our individual lives, but also of God's greater purposes in the world. So stories like Joseph help us see God's hand is there, even in the midst of a place where it doesn't look like he's there. And, and we see that all throughout Scripture. So Abraham, how long till the promise was fulfilled? Twenty-five years. And how many times did he think God was not there? Like every day. <laughs> and so we have that story to say, you know what? God was working when it didn't look like he was. What about Moses? How long was Moses in the desert? Forty years. That's like those of you that are in school. You know, college for 40 years, seminary for 40 years, preparation for 40 years, and then you're finally there. Some of you are on the 40-year plan. <laughs> uh, but, but, but before, before Moses is able to lead the children of Israel out, he needs 40 years, right? 40 years to learn things. I hope I didn't offend anyone with that. I wasn't just a simple joke. But what about David? David spent years as a shepherd, and then he spent years away from his kingdom, fearing for his life, whether it's from Saul or, or from his son. What's God doing? He's doing something. He's building character. He's getting him ready for whatever he's got. What about Paul? Second Timothy. Paul is left in prison just like Joseph. And in his imprisonments, he's often forgotten by the people outside. Just like Joseph. He's forsaken. He's left alone. But what is God doing? God's using Paul even in the midst of that. As we read this morning, the word of God is not bound. Of course, Jesus is our great example, isn't he? Jesus, remember this, we've said it before, but Jesus never asks us to walk a path that he has not. Jesus never stands and says, you go there. He always says, come follow me. And Jesus has walked this path. Follow me. Follow me into darkness. Follow me into despair. Follow me into places of weeping like the Garden of Gethsemane when it looks like everything is against me. Follow me into betrayal by people that are closest to me. Follow me into being forsaken and forgotten by those that you came to serve. Follow me into death. Follow me into humiliation. And we look at Jesus and we see him do all this. And what comes out of it? The salvation of the whole world. And it had to happen that way. Jesus had to die so that he could be resurrected. But in the garden, he weeps. But he goes forward because why? There's a bigger picture. There's something greater that's happening here. We read in in, in Hebrews 5, Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. How crazy is that? If that's true, then why would it be surprising that we would learn obedience, that God would build character in us through the things that we suffer? It doesn't make it easier, but it does because it makes sense. That's how we have to learn. There's no shortcuts. I think we have to hold on to this bigger picture because we measure things in hours and minutes and seconds and tenths of a second. And, and, and the Olympics are coming, so we're talking about hundredths of a second. I mean, that's how we measure things. How does God measure things? Years, centuries, decades, millennia. I mean, eternity is how God measures things. He's working on these individual canvases of our lives, but we are part of this larger mural that expands through all human history into eternity that tells his great story of redemption and of coming judgment and of making all things right. 
and Jesus will make all things right. I don't think by saying, think about the big picture, you're going to get out of jail just like Joseph did. Maybe not. Because that doesn't always happen. But we do know in the really big picture that everything will be set right. That when Christ does return and set up his kingdom, that everything will be the way that it's supposed to be. And maybe that's our ultimate hope. Big picture. Think about the big picture of, of, of your life individually. What is God growing in me in this period that he's going to use later on? The pain that I'm going through so that I can relate to someone else and minister to someone else. The character traits that he's building in me to use me in the service of his kingdom. Or it could be that he's just building in you faithfulness in the midst of that. And that's enough. That you're faithful in the difficulty. Faithfulness in the difficulty, it doesn't have to have an end in and of itself. I read an illustration that was talking about a missionary who received the gift from, from someone that she had been ministering to, and it was a shell of some kind. And she realized that the shell had come from a long distance away. And she mentioned that, and he said, yeah, the journey is part of the gift. I thought that was interesting to think about how it's, it's not just the end that God is glorified in. But God is glorified in the faithfulness. God is glorified in Joseph's faithfulness for 13 years, not just in his exaltation. Maybe he's honored more in that faithfulness than even in the exaltation. There's a big picture that we need to get a hold of. Can I read a quote from Lord of the Rings that I read to you not long ago? At the risk of crying, because <laughs> I was crying to Lord of the Rings. But it's about Sam and Mordor, remember this? And, and everything seems dark and dismal, and it's, it's all over. And it says, that, it says, there peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tour high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star, I told you, <laughs> twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Sometimes in the valley, we just look up and there's one star that helps us see this this bigger picture. There's something bigger going on. I don't get it. But I know God's doing something. He's building something in me. And not just a big picture, but within that big picture, there's a, there's a big God who is orchestrating all of these things. What sustains us? It's who God is. What is God doing? Here's what Jerry Bridges holds on to. He says in, trust, in his book, Trusting God, three things. God is sovereign. And we see that in this passage. He's in control of all that stuff that's going on. God is sovereign. God is wise. He's way smarter than I am. Joseph says, this is when the time... Time to get out. It's through this guy and now, right away. And God says, no, two years. Give me two years and then you can come out. That's when it's going to be perfect. And for us, we say, no, God, the time is now. But he is wise. He's wiser than we are. He's sovereign. He's wise. And he's good. He is so good. He is working for our good and he is loving us. He's full of grace to us. And can I add a fourth not to pretend that I know more than Jerry Bridges, but I just think from this context, he is present. Don't we see that? The Lord is with Joseph. He is with us. We have a God who's not only with us when everything is going right, but he's also with us in all of the pits that we're thrown into. 
He is there. He's not absent. Corey Ten Boom, if you know her story, she was thrown in a pit. It was called a concentration camp. She was a, a Christian in a concentration camp in Germany. Saw her sister die, I believe, days before they were released. And she was released and stood as a testimony of faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. I think we need big pictures. I think we need to understand our big God. And then we need we need poems. <laughs> That's what Corrie Ten Boom wrote. She wrote this book. It's called Light, or this, this poem called Life is But a Weaving. We don't know anything about weaving in our day and age. But if you're weaving something, you can see the pattern on top. But underneath, it just looks like craziness. looks like strands of thread. So just remember that. Corey Ten Boom says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Isn't that Joseph? Do what you want, God. Trust you. May that be true of us. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us. Father, we look at this passage that seems just random in some ways and yet what a revelation of your sovereignty of your wisdom of your goodness Lord you know and you love and you care Lord help us when it's dark and when we don't understand when we think we know the way out and we get let down by circumstances or by people to know Lord that you are ever with us Lord, when others forget us, you never do. You always remember us, Lord. And help us to hold on to that in the midst of difficulty, God. That we would look as it were and see that the stars are still shining and there's a big picture going on and you are building something in us. You're using us. You're, you're growing character in us. And if for nothing else, then we would glorify you in the faithfulness of that then to you be the praise, but if you would grow character in us so that we can be used greater in the future, then to you be the praise, Lord. We want to live our lives in a way that would please you and glorify you. So thank you, God. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for letting us see big stories so that when we're stuck in the small scenes of our lives, we can know that, that there's something bigger going on. Pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.